Hello, and welcome to Nectara Conversations. I'm your host, Pascal Tremblay. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Nectara, a psychedelic wellness support ecosystem. And today I'm really thrilled and honored to have Sadaf Latfalian on our podcast. And um, Sadaf is a clinical psychologist. She's a person that um, I have a lot of respect for and uh, for her work in the world and the way she shows up in the world as well with deep integrity and, and heart and spirit towards herself and others and the work that she does in a psychedelic space. Um, Sadaf, would you like to say a few words and welcome? So happy to be here with you. Thank you. Hmm. I'm so happy to be here too. I'm so blessed that you found me somehow and, um, Shada was just such a blessing. And then to sit with you and Elaine, um, it's just been such a gift. I feel like you speak my language. I feel like I see you and you see me and I'm, and I'm just grateful for that to us for a sense of belongingness and, um, creativity too. What can we create together? Feels mm -hmm. wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Uh, we're recording this today on, in, I'm based in Kaslo and the land of the Kootenays and the land of the Sinai people and the Kanaha people. And I want to acknowledge and honor their, um, their uh, history and uh, their presence here on the land. So I'd like to start with that. And um, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Lisbon, Portugal. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So how, tell us about Sadaf. Like, how did you get here? Um, where, how did your journey begin with plant medicines and, you know, how did you become a, a therapist or a clinical psychologist? Uh, how did you land here today on our conversation? Hmm. <clears throat> well, first, can I pull us a nature card? Right. Yes. Before we start the conversation. So that we have our nature allies with us on the altar here. Beautiful. Yes. Thanks for bringing that in. Of course. Um, I have my deck of the wisdom of nature and we've got some symbolism, of course, always from nature. So we'll just have our allies with us. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's okay. I remember you said your favorite number is number five. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. So can I pull number five for yes, you? Yes, I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Mm, and I'll do eight. Hmm. Okay. The ant colony, mm -hmm. which is symbol of the dignity. Huh. Of a lovely life. I want to show you this. I'm, I promised you that I would send you the writing for this, but for now we know that it's the colony of ants who are with us. Nice. Okay. Beautiful. I love ants. So that's perfect. <laughs> Wonderful. And then I had, I got the Arabian desert, which is symbol of forgiveness. And I'll uh -huh. put this here with us. Beautiful. Taking us to the roots. Wow. So we have the, the desert root. and the ants supporting the us ants. on this podcast. That's perfect. Yes. I feel very Wonderful. well supported. Amazing. Amazing. So how did I get here? Um, you know, as a therapist, I think I, I, I went through a lot in childhood. 
And I think the, the one thing that I desperately wanted was for some of my really difficult emotions, like anger, rage, sadness, um, fear to just, um, be held and to be listened to and to be heard. And, um, but often what would happen was that I would have an emotion that was, you know, not the most pleasant, but the people around me would get really dysregulated and, mm -hmm. um, or they would become neglectful or they would sort of, so I, I had this story of abandonment around if I have this difficult emotion, I'm going to be either neglected or abandoned, or the people around me will go into victimhood and get totally dysregulated. And so then I would have to manage their emotions. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think there was a desperation in me in teenage years of like, can somebody just hold space? Because these emotions, I don't intuitively, I was like, I don't think they're bad. I really don't think, I'm not convinced that these are bad emotions. And so the closest thing was psychology back then. It was like, okay, so let's understand emotions and let's understand what makes people behave in the way that they do. And um, I got really into it in high school. Um, I specialized in it in high school and loved it. And then it just um, started my whole career and education in psychology and it was wonderful. Um, I, back then, this is, I think, um, maybe 20 years ago, back then there was, it's amazing to see what's going on right now because back then, every time I would say I'm into psychology, the immediate reaction was, oh, so you're, you have problems and you're crazy and you know, all these sort of, it was so dis sort of stigmatized and and really not supported. Um, and, um, now it's not like that. And I love that. It's really not like that. More people have respect for therapy. More people have respect for how important mental health is and how we're normalizing that. Um, we all just need a safe place for, um, all sorts of human experiences to take place without, mm -hmm. um, shaming it or without, um, intellectualizing it or without, creating stories around it. And, mm -hmm. um, so I love that, um, with psychedelics, um, my first experience was in Vancouver actually, cause I used to go to UBC for undergrad and, uh, my friend, my dear friend Khaled, the first year of undergrad, uh, said, I, you know, I'm going to brew some mushroom tea and we're going to take it to Stanley park and I'm going to have a speaker with me with a six to eight hour long playlist. Um, we have the exact same taste in music and mm -hmm. we're just going to sit on the bench in silence and you will then see, um, what, you know, mushrooms are all about. And that's the classic Vancouver experience, right? Classics. Grab some mushrooms, go Stanley to the beach. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Sit by the water, stare into the abyss and just yeah. really experience nature. Um, but what, and, and of course, experiencing nature from that sort of, um, closeness, right? Like it's so mm. vivid and, um, so connected was a part of it, but 
what really happened to me was that I, um, the tree that was, we were sitting on a, on a bench under a tree and, um, the branches of the tree would turn into my dad. Uh, my dad's face kept coming up and, mm. um, he, my father died when I was 13. This is when I'm about 20, 21. And I really had not acknowledged, um, I was too afraid during this period to even want to see him. I would not dream about him. I would not connect to mm. him. I would not pray with him. Uh, it was just too much. And so when he visited during this trip or when I knew that my psyche was sort of reflecting or projecting something that needed to be seen, needed to be connected to, I was just, um, it was life-changing because it was, it was actually the beginning of my acknowledgement that I had some real grief work to start. Um, mm -hmm. And that was lovely. It was tough because then the next 10 years were like really messy grief work. It was like, ugh, just don't know what's going on. Everything is a mess. Like waves of healing followed by total dysregulation. Like you know, lots of therapy, lots of this and that. Um, but it was the beginning of where I'm at with it now, which is probably the most connected I feel to my dad and the most, um, grounded I feel in my, in my grief, um, for him and with him. So, uh, I owe it to that, to the first time, you know, mm -hmm. of experiencing that. Yeah. Beautiful. Francis Weller wrote a wonderful book on grief called the edges of wild, uh, the wild edges of sorrow. Uh -huh. And he says that grief is an invitation to love once again. Right. Um, oh. and I really like that book around grief and, and what it shares and the way he shares it as well. And, um, you, that must have been a very special experience. And then you stepped into more, um, more into the space after that, like, how did you get into the kind of the professional realm of, uh, post Vancouver mushroom experience. How was yeah. that the transition? So, um, so when I was in high school, I started practicing Buddhism super randomly, very random, but it saved my life to some extent. Um, and I knew that mindfulness was the practice that would sort of, uh, ground my professional career. And through mindfulness, I was like, okay, so what, what tools and what bridges and what pathways do we have to mindfulness? One of them is psychedelic medicine to really ground in the practice of present moment awareness and, um, compassion. And, um, so I was into mindfulness. I was still sort of getting into the research of mindfulness in undergrad. And I started applying for summer internships and, um, my, I, I'm super lucky, amazingly lucky that, um, I had a personal connection to, um, Bill Richards, Bill and Brian Richards, who, um, are Bill Richards is basically a legend in starting the Johns Hopkins cell Simon studies and, um, together with Griffiths and, you know, those people and mm -hmm. uh, Brian Richards, um, was just pivotal in sort of helping me with that, um, with that step. And, um, they had me on the psilocybin studies, um, as an undergrad sort of summer intern. 
And in the beginning, I thought I was just going to run research and like do the data analysis and data collection and da da da. da. And then, and then they started saying, "Come sit on the mushroom sessions uh, with the research participants." Um, and that changed everything. I sat on the sessions for the preparations and the actual psilocybin sessions and the integrations, mm-hmm. and watching Bill Richards uh, be in his essence of sort of guiding. And having exposure to um, really compassionate facilitators in these studies who were um, so devoted to um, the bigger picture, you know, of healing. And, um, mm-hmm. and um, that's how it started. So then I thought, okay, this is it. I want to do this. I want to, I want to, one, one major way to commit to mindfulness is through psychedelic medicines, through plant medicines. And, um, and so then I was like, okay, so naturally I have to get my PhD in clinical psychology. Cause back then it also wasn't like this. There was, it was very hierarchical. If you could only really practice if you were a PhD in clinical psychology or if you were a psychiatrist, um, to some extent, it's still, we still have those um, barriers, but, uh, much less so now, but I was like, mm-hmm. okay, if I really want to practice freely, um, I'm going to go do this. So then I just started my PhD in clinical psych with the hope that at the end of it, I would then um, be in my own practice of facilitating and educating and doing research and so on. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. It's, yeah. it's interesting how sometimes you meet one person and they like to change it, your entire life. It's like everything changes like a junction A, junction B. And it's like, whoa, five years later, you're like in a yeah. completely different situation. Um, so, so pivotal. So, mm-hmm. so pivotal. Luck. It was a lot of luck. Um, yeah, divine timing. Divine yeah. timing, truly, it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. So, as as a, you know, I imagine, you know, and I'd love to hear more about this. Is how your um, your childhood experience like has shaped your work now as as someone who is supporting others as well. You mentioned like not feeling safe, um, mm-hmm. like being you and and feeling you and expressing you to your immediate surroundings and um how has that helped um not just inspire but also help guide you in your way uh as as you're supporting others now like the the word safety comes up um yeah you know what does safety um mean to you and and how would you describe a, a safe space because it's something that you know in the psychedelic space that a lot of people are talking about these days is you know, uh, vetting guides, you know, setting the right container, those type of things, um, you know, doing your own work. So how would you describe a safe space? Yeah. Hmm. Let me not get intellectual about this. And it's always relative too, right? So the, the I'm asking your perspective on safety, yeah. but for some other people, it might feel and, and, you know, it might be different for others. So just your own is, um, a unique perspective on that for me safety is when we show up and we don't mix our own stuff with the experience that the person in front of us is having Mm -hmm. and if a person is having an experience and they're coming to you What's it like to continue to normalize their experience with compassion 
right? Mm -hmm. And being very boundaried around not mixing up your own stuff and, and putting it into that space. It's not about me. Like as a facilitator, it's never about me. Mm -hmm. right? And for me, so safety in these spaces is sort of like, can I feel grounded enough that my own personal fears and spiritual fears and, but also my longings, you know, and, and desires and attachments don't get in the way that I can sort of center in saying, ground your fears, but also ground your longings because this is not about you. Mm -hmm. hum humbly, like with humility, just saying, I'm just here for you. Mm -hmm. And so if that happens for me, it seems if that happens, then the person has an opportunity to actually feel safe enough to be themselves fully, perhaps to even be dysregulated if they need to be dysregulated, right? To be expressed, mm -hmm. to normalize that, um, our process is, is messy and human and difficult and beautiful and ecstatic and, and all of it. But at the end of the day, it's not about my agenda, right? And it's not about my motivations. So I have to be very clear. I think for me as a facilitator, you're sort of like entering a space. I have to be very clear and grounded in my motivations. If my motivations are rooted in fear, I really pause. And I have to process that for myself in my own support systems, right? So that I don't bring that into a space. And if my mm -hmm. motivations are also wrapped up with my desires for the world, my attachments to transcendence and whatever, I also still, that to me, that's still a flag. And I pause and I say, that's not, a, it's not about you. Um, and, and I still mm -hmm. find my support networks when I, where I go and I'm like, you know, I'm feeling overly attached to healing in this container. I want everybody to just like heal and be, <laughs> be beautiful and be connected. And, and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. That's, that's my cue of saying, um, you need to pause and you need to slow down. And, mm -hmm. um, so safety is sort of, can you be rooted and grounded in the present, in the moment, without any attachments to your fears or your desires? Mm -hmm. With a lot of humility that we're not, I'm not there to save the world. I'm also not there to be totally dysregulated in my own fears. Right? Like, mm -hmm. um, and I think when that happens, uh, when I don't have an agenda, but I can just show up and um, hold the space, then um, a lot of magic actually unfolds because the person can feel safe. And if they feel safe that I don't have particular motivations or agendas that I'm projecting onto them. Mm -hmm. And they can feel that too. They feel the energy around the space. And, you know, as I was navigating the psychedelic world myself, like, you know, sitting with different facilitators, you there's a big difference between someone who's creating a very deep, safe container and someone who's kind of dancing around the edges of safety. Like you feel it inside your body. Yeah. Um, and as you were entering the kind of your career as a facilitator, like 
how was your experience with that? Because it's it's a new container to step in for someone who hasn't held space for others before. I've experienced the same thing recently with breathwork, like being a facilitator for the first time. It's um, it's a sacred duty and it's a place of reverence. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm lucky to have sat with other people before. So I, I kind of feel the energy so I could kind of be that energy like naturally. Uh, but as someone who, you know, was learning the, the ropes, like what did you learn about safety and as a facilitator and um, through your experiences with different clients, like what are things that uh, were kind of big pieces for you to take away aside from like the, the really big one you just shared around um, uh, just being present, you know, just yeah. holding that space of, of, of neutrality almost for someone. Yeah. This actually makes me think of people that I like my mentors instead of thinking of myself as where have I been safe or what have I practiced sort of like it's taking me to the mentors who really embodied that for me and I think those people are have actually learned to really be kind to themselves first Mm mm-hmm they are constantly forgiving themselves first, like the, and they are, they can hold compassion well for others. And that, that means humbly often saying, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I forgive myself for that. We're all, we're all in this mess together. I don't know, but I'm mm-hmm. here and I'm going to keep showing up, but I don't know. I have these desires and I have these fears too. And, um, but I don't have answers for you necessarily, you know, and to get comfortable with that, because for me, like we laugh about it sometimes with my uh, PhD cohort where we're like, you know, the first few sessions you have with clients are, you'll never forget because you're sitting you know, as a, as a therapist for the first time. And you, we would get so excited when they would cry. We're like, yes, you know, like we did it. Like she cracked, you know, (laughs) like something. And, and, um, but the ego like was quite fragile, you know, in that sense, because Mm -hmm. it was, it, 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 uh, it was like the attachment to like, yes, we, yeah, she cracked, you know, I did it. We did it like, yeah. um, and with time you actually learn that there's so much glory and beauty that unfolds when you're sitting in front of a client and you say, I don't know. And let's just hold that together. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like this visceral experience of like, I'm here just with you holding hands and I don't know. Yeah, it's a witnessing. It's a witnessing. Word. It's a truly witnessing. The word facilitation comes from the Spanish word facil, which means to make it easy. To mm. make it easy. So facilitating is not this, I'm doing this for you. It's like I'm making it easy for your own inner intelligence to surface and your inner wisdom really to flourish. Um, Beautiful. Yeah, it's Beautiful. the word facil. And how was your experience... Um, well, first, let's talk about like the facilitator role as well in terms of like how can people that are facilitators um, 
what's important to consider around their own blind sides. Like you mentioned, like um, doing this or the ego of like cracking someone or uh, maybe some trauma comes up around, you know, I didn't feel safe when I was younger and now this is happening to you and I'm like dysregulating. Um, how, what's important to consider around the blind sides and, and also for people that are looking for facilitators um, around the, this idea of like facilitators are not gods, you know, they mm -hmm. all have their own stuff. They have their own shit to work through. Um, mm -hmm. So what's important for facilitators around their own blind sides, but also for people that are working facilitators around these people are not perfect. They're human. Like you said, just now, like we should have this shared humanity. We all have our own problems and troubles and, you know, weak points and strong points. And, um, yeah, I would love to, to hear more about that because it's something that's very, um, talked about in the psychedelic space these days. Yeah. Have you ever sat with those facilitators where you feel like you've entered a trance? In what way? Like, it's almost like, okay, maybe I, sometimes I sit with facilitators where it feels like I'm in their trance and I'm just sort of, whether they're speaking in a didactic way or whether they are energetically sort of creating a trance where I actually, to be honest, a trance for me is quite dissociative. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, I leave those ceremonies feeling like I don't even remember what happened. Something felt good, I think, and something may have felt bad, but I don't remember. And, and I was slightly mm -hmm. dissociated because I was in a mental trance of this shining thing that was being shared. You know, that scares me. I don't like that. Like, I just mm -hmm. like, um, I don't like that. Um, I think safe facilitators encourage you to get back inside your own body and to keep listening and to keep embodying your own body and channeling mm -hmm. what's the wisdom that exists in your own body and teaching you sort of, if you don't know, teaching you grounding practices that get you back inside into your own sources of groundedness and wisdom. Mm -hmm. I, I, you, they don't create a trance. Um, to me, that that's what came up for me right now, just like sort of organically right now. It, mm -hmm. it reminded me of ceremonies where I felt like I dissociated and then don't really know what happened and couldn't really integrate. Mm -hmm. Wasn't memorable. Yeah. Um, so safety for me is humility i don't know the beginner's mind beginner's mind totally just mm -hmm. beginner's mind um but i'm present i'm present and beginner's mind and re let's really respect the body um in its magic to be able to ground itself um and um lots of humility and lots of compassion um, and this idea that like, let's not create a trance here. Trance mm -hmm. is like the most unrooting. I don't know. Do you know what I mean when I say a trance? I don't know if I'm Yeah, I've been there and got a t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And, and what, what would you like to share around, um, 
this idea that the facilitator needs to be this perfect, you know, healer type or perfect person that has it all figured out because there's a lot of power dynamics in that relationship of, yeah, there can be, and there, there shouldn't be, but there can be around the facilitator being like above the person. I've seen mm -hmm. some facilitators, um, it's not just in psychedelics, but you know, they, they, they sit on a higher chair than everyone else, for example, mm -hmm. you know, like that's sort of like feeling, mm -hmm. um, and in therapy spaces, of course, there is, there's a very strong power dynamic there because someone is in a very vulnerable state and the other person is kind of helping guide and there can be some um, complexes that show up in that space. And uh, it can be challenging for people um, to understand and to um, really feel into how they should vet their facilitator because it's such a new space, it's a new type of experience. Um, what do you have to share around like vetting facilitators and um, how can someone navigate these oceans of like different facilitators propping up and not having uh, one source of truth? You know, if there is such a thing around like, which are the facilitators that are uh, kind of ethical that can hold safe space. And to me, I've always resorted to like, you know, get references from like really close friends that you trust because then they've had the experience and they can share their experience and you trust them as a friend. Uh, but that's not always available and it can be nebulous sometimes too, right? So uh, yeah. what's what's your vision of the space in terms of vetting facilitators, like um, training programs and things of that nature to make sure that the space does grow in a good way and that people are held in safe spaces? Yeah. Um... This might actually connect us to the next theme of preparation, mm -hmm. but um, this this era of a facilitator being the expert, I think, is dissolving because of the power dynamics that it has historically created in mental health at least in westernized, um, I'm, I'm talking about the Western model, right? Um, mm -hmm. where, where the expert knew, so you absorbed what they knew and you applied it to your own process. Um, I think the more we're actually learning about being relational human beings to live in community, to learn more about relationships, to more learn about safety and have foundational um, values of actually we're all in this symbiotic thing together. It, it's not like this and it's not linear. It's actually circular and dynamic um, and symbiotic. And mm -hmm. within that context means a therapist sometimes is here, sometimes is here, sometimes is here, sometimes is like that. And and the client too, right? I'm learning from my clients all the time, all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not, it's not like I'm always here and they're always here and they're, and we don't, I'm, I'm, I have nothing to learn. Like it, we are just dynamic as human beings. So to assume otherwise, to assume we're linear really misses the magic mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the time. So, and that, I think that applies to facilitation. It's no different. Uh, I think I trust therapists who are very relational, 
who acknowledge that they're actually very dynamic. Um, they commit to grounding themselves and learning and growing all the time. But at the end of the day, they're like this, you know? And, mm -hmm. um, and so to me that, that, that then means we're also all responsible. Okay. Just because the therapist is a therapist, that doesn't mean the client puts all the power away, gives all their power away, gives all their responsibility away for the therapist to caretake because this therapist is God and they've got nothing else going on. To me, that means you're too vulnerable because that is just not true. The therapist will have a lot going on. They also have a mood and all sorts of neurotransmitters and all sorts of chemicals running through their bodies. They might be on their period. They might be on a diet, like who knows, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so that to me, that assumes let's all take responsibility. Even as a client, don't put too much pressure and power onto the facilitation either. Mm -hmm. You're responsible. You're responsible to commit and show up with full awareness and understanding and beginner's mind to your own process as well. Mm -hmm. right? um, and I think that's the part that sometimes is missing because clients can show up with certain expectations into a container. I want this and this and that. Can you make it happen? Mm -hmm. Right. And they expect it not only from the facilitate, the human facilitator, they also expect it from the plant medicine facilitation, right? From the psychedelic, mm -hmm. from all sorts of medicine. They're just like, I want this and I want this and show me, <laughs> bring it, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I think we can't do that. We can't, we can't do that. That's assuming you're not responsible for the process, right? So for the, I think this relates us to preparation. Can I go into that for a moment? Absolutely. Please go ahead. Yeah. I was just talking about how in the psychedelic culture right now, we're all obsessed with integration. Everybody's an integration facilitator, you know, like um, integration is crucial. All of our, usually our um, integration processes are actually longer, right? Than the mm -hmm. preparation um, and so on. And I think that's, I think that's great that we emphasize integration more than the actual psilocybin sessions or the psychedelic sessions. But I actually think more weight needs to be given to the preparation phase. Mm -hmm. That's the most crucial to me, it seems, um, process because it gives the client at top an opportunity to really first ground themselves in their own power on a physical level, on a spiritual level, on a mental level, and to really make sure that there are, they take responsibility for their own process because they know their body, right? They have, a, they have a committed practice with their own body to regulate their nervous system. They have a committed spiritual practice where they can connect to, uh, to something grounding that's bigger than all of this. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And they have psychological power to just say, to be able to say, this will pass. These are my 
these are my allies, these are my guides, and just keep grounding themselves in wisdom. So preparation is actually the most important. And so for me, it's like every if you're actually choosing a facilitator or vetting a facilitator, um, before doing any of that, commit to your own preparation and learn about your preparation. When you are grounded in your own power, you'll see that it's so much easier to choose a facil facilitator because you just know. You sit in front of someone, you're like, uh-uh. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Or you sit in front of someone and your body is, your nervous system is immediately like, ah, okay. Harmonic yes. resonance. Harmon there is resonance. There's true resonance and there's safety because you're grounded um, and you can feel the groundedness in the facilitator. If you haven't done that work, you might blindly step into a process where you think the facilitator is everything. Um, yeah. Or you might also even step into a process where you think you're the shit. You know, you're like the best client. Take me, take more. I can take more. I can take like 500, whatever. <laughs> you know, and it's like it, you'll be in that process. And that's always going to be slightly if not a lot traumatic, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so my answer to that is one, I don't know. I, I, again, I don't know how we vet. I think we're in a very um, gray area in psychedelics right now where we're, we're all co-creating together. We don't know what's really going on and we're just trusting, trusting the locals, in the way that there's a resonance for ourselves and we're going with that rhythm. Nobody knows more than the other, really. Um, but if I can say one thing is before choosing a facilitator, if you're an institution, even as an institution or as a private client, as a, um, an underground retreat ceremonial space, whatever is going on first, prepare yourself in being grounded on in a holistic way, even as an institution, right? Ground yourself in your values, in your commitments and in your ceremonies like Nectara, like ground yourself in your own ceremonies. When you've done that, you know yourself, you know your power, you know your blind spots, then choose a facilitator. Then you'll just know. Mm -hmm. Does that Beautiful. make sense, that process? It's, it's honoring the prep work as much as honoring the sacred space of medicine, really. It's like honoring yeah. the, the process to be able to have a safe and deep experience and, um, and honoring yourself as well. And you mentioned the body, which I, I love what you bring into the conversation around prep work is really landing in your body and being connected to your body because there's so much information that's stored there and so much, um, you know, trauma that's stored in, in the energy body as well. And, uh, what yeah. are ways that people can pre prepare their body and connect with their body? Because for a lot of people, um, there is a culture around chasing healing. We've all seen it. Yeah. We might have even done it at some point ourselves. Like, oh, I need to do this medicine. Like the first time I tried a certain medicine, I was like, wow, I'd love to do this every month. You know, it was so exciting, this new territory. It was, um, but there is a cultural kind of umbrella that's kind of emerging in the psychedelic space and socially because we want to heal basically and um, yeah. the solutions seem very exciting and new and and you know of course they can be wonderful um 
but people don't quite have the resources. And that's why Nectara exists is to help build those resources to help bring people into safer spaces. Uh, but what are ways that you can share? There's probably hundreds of different modalities and different ways that people can do that. But what are ways that you prepare for a psychedelic experience? Yeah. Um, I, I honestly, at this point, I think, I hope, um, for me, it's not like, okay, I'm about to go into a psychedelic ceremony. So I'll just use these two weeks to prepare or one month to prepare. It's more of a, this is my lifestyle. Yes. Like mm-hmm. this is like Nectara, right? Like every, everything is a ceremony. So the lifestyle is the true embodiment of presence into my own body, into my psyche, into my spirit all the time, Mm -hmm. as much as I can. Um, not that I do it perfectly or consistently, not at all, but, um, I hope that there's something like a bit ritualistic to my rhythm right now where it's like every day there is a little bit of something, a little bit of, I, I make sure that there's at least a 20 minute, right? At least 20 minutes of, a practice where I'm, I feel embodied. I go, I breathe into different parts of my body to bring air, to bring presence, to bring attention to every single part of my body, to occupy it, especially for people that come from, for example, I, I come from a, um, a background of PTSD and trauma. So there is, I know that I dissociate, you know, and I know that there's hypervigilance. And when that happens, I completely, like, I can't, it's as if I can't feel, I don't know where my legs are, mm-hmm. right? Like things like that. So every day there's just a practice of embodiment where I just simply bring my attention and notice. I tell the different parts of my body, hey, I, I'm noticing you. Just that, I'm noticing you. How are you? And mm-hmm. if you can use the breath to also breathing to just pull the breath into each body part so that there's a feeling of um, occupation or embodiment as opposed to void and emptiness, right? Um, so for me, it's like I have to do 20 minutes every day of that. And that sometimes is through the breath. That sometimes is through yoga. It's through walking in nature. In nature, it's through sensual experiences like taking a bath, you know, working with um, scent, like essential oils or incense to just sort of activate the senses. Um, mm-hmm. Dancing like too. That. Dancing is my medicine. I wish I would do it every day. That's my biggest, that's my deepest medicine. Um, mm. And yeah, so practices like that where it's like you just prioritize that every day for preparation what happens is when you are in the psychedelic ceremony, have you ever had those? Um, you don't have to answer that, but for me, there have been moments where it has been so intense. The experience, the psychedelic experience is so intense that really my only grounding ally is my body. There's just Mm -hmm. no way around it. All I actually have control over um, is to regulate my nervous system as much as I can. 
And yeah. those are soma- psychosomatic practices or somatic practices where, you know, I, I'm, I might be in ceremony and I'm, and I'm doing this, you know, or I'm holding myself or I'm do, I do Qigong and I work with energy or I work with my breath or it's mm-hmm. things like that where I'm, I'm only able to, be, to stay present if I'm embodying my body. So if somebody is not practiced in that, it can get pretty, it can, you know, you can get pretty, it can get tough. I mean, when they say it's a bad trip, it can get tough, you know. Mm-hmm. That's just the body part. But then, of course, there's a spiritual practice where you keep grounding yourself of, for me, it's I am nobody. Mm-hmm. I, I, ground, I ground in the humility of I am I, all I feel is love and before God, there's just love and I'm, and I'm nobody but love too. And I just ground in that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I, connected, connected yeah. to the, um, the selfless, the, the no ego space that's, it diffuses every, every story and every attachments or every, you know, feeling of me really. Yeah. Um, and that's what I love about some psychedelic experiences, especially with something like Wachuma. Mm-hmm. Um, it removes you in as the center of the circle, but rather makes you part of the circle. So you, mm-hmm. so you can witness things in a way that's like, there's no more ego involved in that. And that's I love extremely that. beautiful and wonderful to connect with nature that way, because it, it really, you mentioned that earlier around connecting with something bigger than ourselves. Yeah. And that to me is probably for me, the most powerful insight that psychedelics offer us is that feeling of reconnection to everything that is. And mm-hmm. that diffuses a lot of the, um, for me, the anxiety and the stress and the, the attachments to like actions or results or stories. And uh, that just diffuses all of that. Um, my friend David, um, who's a Nectara guide, he's a mindfulness teacher. And um, he likes to say, like, uh, remove the doer from your actions. You're just mm. a prism from which God can flow through. And I love that. Mm. I keep reminding myself of that. And I, mm. there's a part of what you're saying that kind of connects with that, too, and your background in mindfulness and how it connects pe- uh, your practice and how you hold space for others that's really grounded in the present moment, like being present and being a witness to yourself and to others in the space. And that's a big part of the medicine I find. Yeah. Yeah. And what I love about the part I love about neuroscience right now in psychedelics, um, which I think is our greatest evidence for how actually the ego is, is um, getting sort of diluted or like is getting dimmed right? We're, we're noticing that there actually is a center uh, in the brain where um, activity sort of reduces. And that is the center that holds our sense of self, uh, the self-referential place, and which basically means it's your ego to some extent. I mean, these are all hypothetical, but, um, and that in, on psychedelics, that sort of, that dims and the activity isn't there and so when that happens it's like there's this there's just openness to the present you know and there's as you said there's like no attachment to 
a story of who I am, what, what I need to do to the doer or the action, you know, all of that sort of dissolves. So you get to just be for a lot of people that experience can be dysregulating because it's like, Oh, I need to control where, you know, there's like a lot of control and to surrender to no beingness and just, you know, can be scary if you haven't mm -hmm. prepared. Yeah. Yeah. But if you've prepared and you know that no, actually there's safety in that because then, then you're just tuned into possibility, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, it can be grounding. I hope that makes yeah. sense. I often don't have language for these things. Well, it's ineffable to you. We're talking about it a very important so experiences ineffable. where like, you know, sages and poets have been writing about for hundreds of years. Right. And, uh, it's hard to find the words sometimes. Yeah. Um, going back to the preparation piece and like really the integration as well, which I agree is kind of a continuum, right? Like we're always mm -hmm. integrating or preparing. And, um, and I, I'm curious around, like we talked about the culture of chasing healing. Um, mm -hmm. and kind of having spaces and people and, and, you know, things put out in the world that kind of change the narrative around that, around like every day is a ceremony. Um, but there's also this concept of, um, I got this. So it's this concept of, you know, our culture has often, um, prescribed to us that, you know, uh, we should be shouldering a lot of things on our, on our shoulders and out of all the things that I've heard of in different circles with groups and community, like one of the most prevalent one that I've seen personally is I'm feeling overburdened. I'm feeling unsupported. Mm. Um, I'm feeling like I'm holding too much. Mm. And so this concept of shifting, I got this to, we got this, you know, really mm. holding ourselves together. Mm. Um, how can people that are uh, preparing for an experience or integrating an experience, how, what are kind of support systems that you have in your life, like around other people um, or spaces or community circles, like what, what's resourcing you these days? Yeah. So that you don't have to hold it all by yourself. Yeah. Um, I'm careful not to get into this. Like I wish ideally would look like this, but it's not kind of um, feeling, mm -hmm. but what I've, what I've experienced is, um, what have I experienced? I have, I am not the type of person and I have, this is why I'm, I'm I, I don't always relate to, I am overburdened. And I think this is where I'm struggling because mm -hmm. I'm at my core. I'm a person who, just massively delegates always. Um, now, so I can't fully relate to like in integration or preparation. Um, I always make sure that we're all together in it and that I, I am not alone in it because I just simply know that doesn't work for me. It just doesn't work for my body. And a lot of people actually do these things in solitude and do it that can work for them. I just can't relate to it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I always have my, I always have my allies that I trust are actually doing the work, whatever, whatever that means that they're committed to their own growth 
And the thing that I trust with them is making sure that they, that receiving help from them or receiving care from them is consensual. So I need to trust that the person that I go to in the community or the community that I'm in is very aware and able to say, I can't hold this right now for you, but um, in one week, in this day, well, let's do this. Like I need to be able to trust that. Otherwise I always have this like feeling of, am I overburdening someone in that sense, right? Or can you say mm -hmm. no? Or can I trust that you say no when, when you actually don't have the capacity? Because mm -hmm. of that, then can I fully trust when you do say yes? And then it's so delicious because we get to sit together and really connect and share, you know, really share, um, mm -hmm. and show up fully. Um, but for that mm -hmm. to happen, I just simply like need to energetically trust that people are really good. Like they can own their full yeses and they can own their full no's in the community. Um, yeah. total radical kindness. Um, mm -hmm. that's a good term for it. Um, so I look for that. I look for people who are like, yes, no, yes, no, mm -hmm. you know, this time, but not this time, this place, but not that place. Um, that sort of clarity. Um, and consent. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I was just tapping into where do I feel trust and safety in not actually overburdening or feeling overburdened, right? um, which means healthy boundaries, kind boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that you bring that up. Like saying no is like challenging. Uh, it's been challenging for me in the past as well. And I found the more I say no, mm -hmm. the more people connect with me and the more people relate to me. And when I say no, I'm always surprised. Well, I used to be surprised around the reaction of like, okay, cool. Uh -huh. I, I totally respect that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I think that's a very valuable point in terms of support systems. Um, um, yeah. Is there anything else you want to add about preparation before we go into clowning? Ooh, clowning. <laughs> Maybe what's your, what's your wish for the psychedelic space in terms of preparation? How about that? Something you'd like to, like your greatest wish for the, the space around preparation? For right now, to be, to honest, to be honest, it's, it's not a grandiose plan. Right now, it's let's just value it. Like, let's uh, hype it up. Um, let's really hype it up. And there, and one thing that I think will surprise us is it's funny because I think the more we commit to preparation, the less we'll need the plant medicines for, to guide us. Not that I'm against psychedelics to be the actual fireworks of the season, right? Like that's like, love them, love everything. But I think we'll find that the more we prepare, the less we'll need because the more grounded we are and the more aware we are and the more we're committed to um, community and support because we'll realize, we'll start to recognize the importance um, of preparation. And then, so for now, for me, it's normalize it, um, emphasize it, 
um, mm-hmm. tune into what works for you in terms of preparation. It's going to be very different, but it has to be holistic. It has to be holistic. It can't leave out the mm-hmm. body. It can't leave out the psyche. It cannot leave out the spirit. It has to be holistic. Beautiful. Yeah. So let's talk about clowning. Um, so the first time I met you, or the second time I met you, you know, I know you're a clinical psychologist. <laughs> you have all these like degrees and like, you know, like internships at big places and degrees and things like that. And then you introduce yourself. And at some point you mentioned you do clowning. And I was like, wow, this, she's a, what an amazing person that has the kind of the clinical side and then the clowning as well, which is beautiful mix of, of humor and pleasure and joy and, and then this more scientific background. So how did you get into that? And tell us more about clowning and do you use it in, in therapy spaces? Um, I felt so ridiculous that day when we met. And I remember turning off the the thing, even though you made me feel so comfortable and so loved. And I had no reason to just feel so anxious. But we we turned off the thing. And I was like, what did I just say? (laughs) Like, what just happened here? because I don't think I had ever really talked about these things in professional spaces, even though this feels a lot more like community. Um, mm-hmm. it, clowning. So, so one is I come from a background. My father was a surgeon, so it was quite scientific and all these things. But my mom is a, an artist um, and she paints. And I, my grandfather is a writer and a poet. Um, and all these things. So it, there was always an importance of, I've, I was always the bridge, the, the skywalker between science and arts or science and spirituality. It was always like I, I walked both, you know, and I was, I was always trying to bridge both of them um, together. And, and so I know I have, like, I have that in me just inherently, but the thing that changed that, um, for me was, I don't know if you, you guys have authentic relating games in Vancouver. Uh, Do you know about the model? I, we've done diets before and we've done kind of spaces like that. Um, uh-huh. yeah, practices like that are definitely powerful. Is that what you, you're talking about? Yeah. So, but the, the platform has uh, leadership sort of trainings. And so I joined the leadership training where you, be- you become an authentic relating facilitator. But okay. it's, very, it's actually very intense because it, get, it really gets down into process and you have to be performative and like your comfort zone is completely out the window, but in a fun, you know, gamey way, not in a, I'm going to crush your ego. So like we build your <laughs> ego back up. Not in, not in that way. It was actually delightful. Um, but that weekend, I was with all leaders, um, and the, the one reflection I kept back getting was that everybody just called me a clown. And I had never acknowledged that in myself because I always, I think of myself as a child, as a very serious, mean child. That's how I think of myself. And then in adulthood, I was like, no, I'm a serious psychologist. that like, da 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 And they were all like, that's all bullshit, actually. We don't see any of that. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're a clown and you gotta 
you got to own that sort of uh, part of you. So what happened was for our grand um, final performance, um, I was mortified but stepped into clowning as my final performance, um, which, because it's authentic relating, clowning is not performance because it's completely authentic. You have to pull every single part of your authentic self to then express it in a clowny way, mm -hmm. which is really tough. Cause it's like, Oh, who am I? What are my authentic selves? And then how do I channel it through clowning? But it was wonderful wisdom to just sort of like, I was shocked, I, you know, to just receive that. And then I got mm -hmm. really into it. And now I really want to go to a clown school and I, and I don't use it specifically in my therapy uh, sessions, but I use it in the treat retreats that I uh, lead um, mm -hmm. where we mix, where we integrate psychodrama with psychomagic um, clowning and all of these elements where you get to practice all those little parts of you that never get to come out because you're so scared of judgment. Uh-huh. Um, so your ego is just bruised, you know, like because <laughs> you're just like, I feel ridiculous, like doing this, but it's not about that because you're actually fully embodying joy, um, yes. when you're doing it and, uh, and play. Um, and when you're doing that, actually pe people feel so connected with you because it's not about performance. It's not about analyzing the perfection of the techniques that you, it's none of that. It's, it's, mm -hmm. can you feel so connected to your authentic joy and your authentic playfulness, even if they're shadows and dark, you know, even if they're like, Ooh, and you're making fun of yourself or you're playing with that. Um, and in that space, people will feel connected to you. There's no way around it. They love it. They see it. Mm -hmm. They see you. Um, and they're not analytical. They feel it with their bodies and they laugh and they cry and, you know, so I, I yeah. love it. I love it as a practice. I also don't really know what I'm talking about because I don't have any formal, it's not a formal clown. <laughs> you know, it's just we're, we're all clowns, I think, in clowning. some way. Yeah. We're all yes. a bit clownish, you know, and it, I think It really there's... resonated with you. It, well, I was the class clown uh, right. when I was younger, so that's why it, maybe right. it resonated. Because I'm like, wow, well, maybe I should be a clown too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, yes. So it, it, this speaks to the idea of of bringing more joy and and fun and mm -hmm. excitement and passion to the healing mm -hmm. path too, right? Because healing yeah. can be so serious, and you know, we're yeah. talking about trauma and shadow work, and we're talking about like our childhood when our parents said something really mean to us. Um, and that's all good and valid, but there's also this yeah. other side that I feel personally that um, it would be wonderful to have more of that. And I'm speaking for myself, but in spaces where we're doing healing work, because laughing together, like being silly together, um, you know, doing cartwheels together, you know, mm -hmm. like painting and those type of like, I wouldn't call them softer, but maybe softer modalities of therapy, like can be very yeah. powerful for connecting us to our inner child again. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, they're wonderful. And so I'm curious, like in your experience, what are some of the modalities that you experienced that kind of brought you into that space and maybe share one experience you had with 
with one of those softer modalities. Yeah. Um, hmm. You know, one thing that came up for me when you were sharing, because of course in, in mental health, we're so used to pathologizing, right? Like historically everything has been pathological and we call them disorders. And, you mm -hmm. know, um, and so it is heavy and, and, um, pathologizing. And yet we also know that if, if we fear, it's almost, I don't know how to say this, but it's almost like if I fear my own joy, um, or my own pleasure, right. And that alone creates a lot of suffering that alone mm -hmm. is like, is contributing to everything. So I don't know how we just bypass that. Like, I don't understand why we bypass that in mental health. Cause it's like, well, we don't always, we, things have changed a lot, right? We're not in a psychoanalytical phase where forever you talk about your mother in a, in a bad way, you know, like we're not in that phase anymore, but, but, um, how connected you can feel to joy and pleasure and all of that, um, also actually gives you permission to feel connected to your pain too. They go together, but in a much more sort of grounded way, right? Like you're not avoiding either because avoidance of either will create suffering. But if you can lean into joy, you can also lean into your pain a lot more skillfully, right? So it is actually productive. Sometimes when my clients are like, but is that really efficient or productive if we, you know, like some clients get a bit sort of heady around th that stuff. I'm like, yes, actually it is very productive because the more you delve into joy, um, the easier and the safer it becomes to also delve into understanding your pain. They go together. Mm -hmm. And and so, okay, so joyful modalities. Um, I've done things <laughs> like uh, I love making sounds that are ridiculous that uh, my mentor, one of my mentors calls it uh, sounding. And so we put sounds to our emotions um, and we... So we just sort of, instead of them telling me, this is my emotion, they actually sound the emotion. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, and a lot of people struggle with that because we feel embarrassed about these things. It's like, Oh, sounds are, sounds are really, I don't know. Sounds are weird. Like, I don't want to, I'll never forget this. This has nothing to do with anything. I'm sorry. I'm going to say this, but in, <laughs> in grad school, in grad school, my, one of my professors said, um, do you know the number one reason to, to the class? Do you know the number one reason? I don't know why I remember this. This is 10 years ago. Do you know the number one reason men feel embarrassed in urinals? And we're all like, I don't even know what class this was, but we're like, we're like size, you know, cause they, <laughs> like, I don't know, they like look over and, and <laughs> compare or I don't know, but that was the, the, the consensus was like, okay, it's size. And he was like, no, it's sound. People mm -hmm. get very subconscious about sound. Um, and so that's a thing, but if we can just get used to expressing it and make fun of ourselves and be funny with it and just be like, <laughs> or like, go yeah. 
one thing to another, like and normalize that there are all sorts and all forms of expression instead of keeping things stagnant. It's beautiful, you know? Um, so that's one thing we do. Um, it releases energy too, right? It moves emotions and feelings in the body and it, you can express those and it, it reduces the charge of them. Like during breath work, we do a lot of sounding. Yeah. Um, I like yeah. to howl like a wolf and that, uh -huh. that helps me with stuff, you know, cause I'm mm -hmm. channeling my spirit guide or whatever, but, mm -hmm. um, it really helps me to like embody that energy and that quality of like the wolf. Right. Yeah. So that connects you as well to like more shamanic aspects of, of healing when you're embodying a certain, you know, yeah. teacher or emotion or, or person or animal or whatever you choose. Like it's very yeah. useful. Yeah, exactly. And it gets us to be, you know, I feel like Western art, I don't know if it's Western art, but art, it, the art world or the performance of world or has actually done a disservice because everything has become so analytical, you know, like, only great singers can sing or this sort of narrative that like, oh, your voice shouldn't be expressed unless you can really sing or things like that, that has really abandoned our bodies. Mm -hmm. um, whereas the body often actually, the expression of it can bring out so much wisdom because it helps to bring all the process out as opposed like you're saying, like, and with that, you can then start to actually transmute what's not serving you, but also embody what's serving you. We can't do it without the body, you know, but it's become so performative and analytical that we're not feeling our bodies anymore or our senses. So I try to use the senses a lot to get back inside and be like, let's, let's see what the body's wisdom is. And sometimes it really, the sounds that are coming out are so joyful. So if the person is like really spiraling in victimhood and, and the stories, the narratives of blah, blah, blah. And, but the sound is making them laugh or making them be like, what was that? And I'm like, I don't know, but it's great. You know, like <laughs> just, um, it lightens things up. It lightens things up and it starts to connect us. Um, that's just one practice there. I do a lot of movement where we make, you know, where we're creating things, um, I, I do from IFS internal family systems. Um, you know, we, we name our different personas and create characters around them. Like, um, I share this a lot with people, but like my, my critical side, that's like vicious. That's like, uh, and now I'm doing clowning with my critical side, um, <laughs> in partnership with someone, uh, it, her name is Thornicus because she's a thorny, she's like a thorny cactus. Dead. I can already feel the thorns with that name. That's a very right? spiky name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So when she comes, I'm like, Thornicus is here. Everybody just like, just watch pause. out, just watch out. Just, <laughs> just, you know. And so we go in a bit of a defense and I start like playing with it. And I'm like, okay, you know, and, and through play, it's a lot uh, safer to then go to Thornicus and be like, it's okay. What, you, what are you needing? Can I, mm -hmm. can I take your thorns out a little bit? Just like what, you know? Um, so through play, we can just do that through imagery, through, um, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. 
some of those softer. It does, I mean, it, it transcends the logical mind is basically yeah, exactly. what I'm understanding what is. is like, it transcends all this, that stuff. Right. That's what um, it is. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. I'd love to do a session with you someday because the, the clowning and the whole like, you know, fast and the whole sounding thing sounds amazing. Let's um, do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, so let, I have a couple of like fast, quick fire questions for you to kind of end this beautiful conversation. Okay. Um, what's a book you're reading these days? Oh, um, we talked about this entangled life. Which is all about fungi and uh, uh, my friend um, got me as a gift and I'm so grateful for that and um, it's brilliant I just I, I think I told you that I think it's one of the most important books of this century and what is it about I mean it's I know about, what it is but for people <laughs> Yeah, so Entangled Life is a, is basic. You would probably describe it better. Sometimes I don't have um, great. I think English, English as second language, sometimes fails me. I can, in these I can try. Aspects, but, but yeah, please try. That would be amazing because you're reading it too. Yeah, I started reading it, and what I'm gathering so far is that it's a book about our fungi overlords and how mm -hmm. it touches on almost everything in life and it affects rain. And it's like how the plants got on earth the first time fungi was like being near roots. And I'm just like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And of course yeah. I've seen fantastic fungi, a documentary and uh, Paul Stamets talking and um, yeah, I'm always blown away. And I think we're just scratch only like seven or 8% of fungi has been like discovered and research. It's amazing what's out there. Yeah. Yeah. And so humbling. I read every mm -hmm. page and I'm like, wait, who are we? What are we doing? Who are we? We're not the masters of the universe. <laughs> We're you not mean the like... masters of intelligence. Like what is oh, that? Oh no. <laughs> yeah. 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 I love the part where he talks about intelligence. I think it's, I mean, I haven't, I haven't finished a book. I'm not even that far, but there's a part where he's like, the way we're measuring intelligence altogether is wrong. It's so, um, based on human being capacity, which mm -hmm. undermines what the, the universe is really capable of. We're not the intelligent, you know, mm -hmm. uh, ones here. Yeah. We've created our own definitions and we've created our own assessments. And based on those, we've said, oh, okay, are we intelligent or are we not? And, and yet it's like the, the, what these, species what these creatures are capable of doing and have done it way before us and will continue to do way after us is just mm -hmm. incredible and that to me is like oh intelligence mm -hmm. it's yeah much larger than us indeed so entangled life uh, mm -hmm. if anyone hasn't checked it out it is a wonderful book highly it's recommended cool. as well yes. um this is a really broad topic. I'd love to actually do another podcast on this, just this topic itself, but diversity in the psychedelic space, you're, you talked about um, something being formed around um, kind of messaging and supporting people from Asian heritage. And you want to talk about that a bit more? Yes, I would love to. So um, uh, my grand, great friend, um, Simran and um, some Asian folks, uh, we're all in the midst of creating a collective called the Asian um, Psychedelic Collective. And Asia really being um, 
all inclusive. So um, the Middle East, you know, Southeast Asia, Southwest Asia, Central Asia, all of that. Um, mm -hmm. And part of the reason why we're doing this is because, you know, <clears throat> a lot of the feedback, I, I, a lot of the people who reach out to me are people who have been harmed um, as POC um, and as BIPOC people in uh, psychedelic spaces because of um, white supremacy and sort of white feminism um, too. Um, and uh, and there's just uh, not only that, but there's just lack of representation. We know that very well. There's lack mm -hmm. of representation in facilitation, in research, in participation, in ceremonies, in resources, like, you know, um, in mm -hmm. all of that, even though, for example, um, the Asian population is the fastest growing population on earth and it's the largest population on earth, but it has the least sort of access to resources and so on in the psychedelic world, it, it kind of makes you pause and, you know, and it's not often, sometimes I've heard, oh, they're, they're not into that. Mm -hmm. They're just like not into, you know, they come from a different cultural background and they're just not into it. Um, in grad school, I used to hear that a lot about um, black and African-American clients where the consensus was, they just don't believe in therapy. So like, it's okay. Let's just, let's just focus on non-black folks, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and it, and to me, that's like, what are you, what, that's not a, that's not true. Um, and the more we destigmatize and create resources and provide accessibility, actually, I think they'll be open to it, you know? Uh -huh. um, so my philosophy right now is one is that it's extremely overwhelming what we're dealing with in the world in terms of diversity and inclusion and how polarized we are and so on. So I give myself grace for feeling very overwhelmed by it. Um, when that happens for me, my way of dealing with that is to get local. Um, and I focus very locally in this neighborhood. Um, what resources are available? What can we do? Where are the spaces? What's, what's the focus group? What are the needs? Let's not, because mm -hmm. I think the more one size fits all kind of way we get, the, the more nuance we're missing and, mm -hmm. um, and the more anxious we'll become because that's impossible. We're not going to do that. Right. So it's a matter of, um, locally find, places where, where you um, have access, right? And for those of us who are in a position where we can provide locally, start providing um, and, and sort of invite people into experiences where they can see for themselves that it's possible to sit together and um, do all these things. But it, to be honest, I think it's a very messy, it's sad, um, to see in psychedelic uh, spaces that we, it's not that much better than the non-psychedelic world, which you wouldn't expect because psychedelics are oneness and connectedness and we're all, you know. Unicorns and rainbows. Yay. Yeah, unicorns and rainbows. So like we're all one and there is no color. and there is Yeah, we've know. all been people of color at some point in our past lives. <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> so then it's like the, the amount of bypassing 
is no difference actually. And we, we are seeing the harm unfold. So yeah, I think my, my thing is let's not, let's actually acknowledge that there's quite a amount of bypassing going on yeah. and that it's not that different from the non-psychedelic world. And we're still seeing the same issues unfold. And in order to manage our own anxiety is get local, get specific, go small, micro movements um, to mm-hmm. me, because I think. Uh, yeah. And look yeah. at ourselves too, right? Like, it, you know, starting Absolutely. within around those, those ideas and constructs and things that we have to undo and clarify and illuminate within all of us really to kind of be able to embody that in the spaces that we show up in. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. It's a, it's a deep conversation. I'd love to have another podcast around this and, and bring more. You have a diversity and inclusion um, crew, right? At Nectara. Yeah. It's a, it's a small forming team right now. And we're welcoming people. If someone out there wants to to help us create safer, more inclusive spaces and what we do, it's very important for us that we understand those nuances because sometimes you, you know, uh, having someone to um, advise you and someone to, uh, be a part of the process really helps you to do those things. It's not something that's inherently going to be perfect from the beginning. So uh, yeah. we're humbly uh, forming a DI council to, to learn and grow with. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. I will say one thing um, around that. Um, oh, and okay. We'll pause. I guess after cool. this, I'm just realizing it's been a while. Um, <laughs> one thing good. I'll say is like, you know, as an Iranian uh, woman, of course, I get a lot of requests from Iranian populations being like, Hey, do you facilitate? Because of course they feel like I, I can know them better somehow. Right. Cause there's cultural connection. And, um, what I'm understanding is actually that it is important. Um, you and I talked about how, like even bringing in Persian instruments and musical instruments and facilitating retreats and uh, that are Iranian at, at their core. And um, so that the, mm-hmm. the, the collective trauma can actually sort of go back to the roots and acknowledge the ancestors and start to work through some of those things in order to arrive where we are now. And these are important. Some of the ceremonial aspects of these containers is like, it's important to actually go back to your roots and, acknowledge and understand it better. So I also want to normalize that we need that, you know, like I, I might not, uh, I might not need, um, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like for me, um, to go back to my roots, I need some Iranian elements, particularly music, like the way I got to move through some things and heal through some things just by Persian music in ceremonies mm-hmm. um, has been important because it brings, it just brings all the stuff up mm-hmm. from places where you're like, I don't even know where that was from. You know, like I don't even. Well, science yeah. is telling us that it, it, you know, the, the effect of kind of your lineage and your, your DNA line is goes back 14 generations. Ah, that's a, wow. that's a long time of it's like, having that in our system and these spaces can help us illuminate those things and understand them and then embodying and integrating them into our, yeah. our living. Um, it's helping us finding meaning and belonging really. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. So Beautiful. <laughs> what a wonderful conversation. Yeah. Um, 
last question, where can people find you? Like where, where can people connect yeah. with you? Um, I have a website and through that, I'm sometimes hesitant to just give out my email. Um, so I'll just do the website. The, my website is www.lotf.cc. And Perfect. you can just contact me there. Um, I go through phases of being really great at responding and then just being like, nope, nope, mm. not the time. So I also want to just uh, put that out there. It depends on how overwhelmed I'm feeling in life and how much is going on. But I, I always do my best to sort of um, be of service in some way. Yeah. Info. Thank yeah. you for that. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for the, your time and energy. And um, it was too. a really honor and a real joy just to speak to you and look forward to the next time. You too, Pascal. It's always a joy. Likewise. Have a to beautiful... More clowning. Two more clowning together. Two more clowning okay. together. Okay. Blessings. And to whoever is out there listening, have a beautiful rest of the day. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Good day. Bye. Bye.